look into your word. We ask you to remove the distractions of our time, our day, our lives, our busyness, so that we can focus completely on your word this morning and what it says to us through your servant, David. We pray that you help us to think through these things, to change our lives because of what we see in your word today. So we pray this morning that you would be uh, teaching us through the power of your spirit. Father, as a, a good father provides all that we need in these things for life and godliness, we also pray that your son, Jesus Christ, would be highly exalted this morning as we consider these things out of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake and glory. Amen. Well, finding prosperity in our adversity. I don't know about you, but when I hear adversity, I sort of, um, I sort of recoil. I, you know, we live in a, probably the, I think, you know, the greatest country in the world. Uh, not pridefully, I just think I look at our history and the providence and sovereignty of God in establishing this nation and much of the reason why it was established was for freedom of worship. We know that in our history books. No matter what revisionism teaches, we were established as a nation to escape persecution. And so, Reeling down to time now, we live in a country of great wealth, strong military, beautiful freedoms. I, I can't, I'm not trying to be a, a political, uh, you know, person here and, and, and being patriotic. Well, I guess I am patriotic, but it, it's really what God has done in this nation. So as a nation, where we are today, as you look around, you live your lives, you work, you go to work, you drive your beautiful cars, you look in the driveway... Out there, there's some nice cars. Uh, we live in a, a very prosperous nation. And one of the things I think that we recoil at is this idea of adversity. You know, we, don't, we live in America. You look at some countries, that's all they know is adversity so much of the time. But God has blessed us with a, place, a blessing in America, in this country. <clears throat> so finding prosperity in adversity. Do you find prosperity in your adversity. You know, as we read Psalm 88, it's, it is a very dark psalm, isn't it? It is very dark, and I would dare say that most of us don't live there, although there are times that I look around this room, and I, we meet as deacons and elders and go through the family lists, and I, I, I know some of you. You have struggles and heartache and problems. You have adversity. You live adversity. Some of you live it every day. Every single day. And you've done so for years. But Psalm 88 is very much related to Psalm chapter 30. Although, chapter 30, Psalm 30, does end on a very good note. And we'll see that. What I'd like to do this morning is do a, just a very quick overview of, of some of the details of Psalms. Some of the, the details of David's life. And then we will look into Psalm 30 for some more details about David and what he was going through, was going through. The Psalms reveal to us the greatness of God and man's need of a great God. 
The writers of the Psalms present God in several ways as a shield, a rock, a shepherd, a judge, a refuge, fortress, a vindicator, creator, deliverer, protector, provider, and redeemer. Praise God that he is a redeemer. As you read through the scriptures, especially the Psalms, these images are seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. J. Sidlow Baxter, in his great work, Explore the Book, rightly describes the Psalms as, quote, poetry of downright reality. Here is strong theology, not, however, any merely theoretic theology, but the practical theology of vivid human experience, close quote. He goes on, it is this fundamentally, it is this fundamentally which has made the book of Psalms such a treasure to the godly. And I would say, amen to that. Paul Tripp in his book, A Shelter in the Time of Storm, subtitled Meditation on God and Trouble, writes this. We really do live in a fallen world. We haven't been given a ticket out of the brokenness of this world simply because we are the children of God. The world we live in simply is not operating the way God intended. There is a second thing we know for sure. There is a God of awesome grace who meets his children in the moments of darkness and difficulty. He is worth running to. He is worth waiting for. He brings rest when it seems like there is no rest to be found. But there is a third thing. You and I were not just hardwired to make our way through this fallen world on our own. We were meant to exist with eyes filled with the beauty of his presence and hearts at rest in the lap of his goodness. This is what I love about the Psalms. They put difficulty and hope together in the tension of hardship and grace. That is the life of everyone this side of eternity. It is not hard to recognize the environment of the Psalms. The Psalms live in your city, on your street, in your family. The Psalms tell your story. It is a story of hope and disappointment, of need and provision, of fear and mystery, of struggle and rest, and of God's boundless love and amazing grace. People in the Psalms get angry, grow afraid, cry out in confusion, survive opposition, hope for better days, hurt one another, run from God, trust in God, make foolish choices, ask for forgiveness, and grow wiser and stronger. They are people just like you and me. Amen. I love that. But have you ever suffered and had a difficult time finding words in your adversity or how to pray not knowing what to pray? And when we don't have words in our sufferings, God gives them to us in the Psalms. But where do you turn in your hard days of suffering and adversity and trial and problems? Where do you turn? Where's the place, the first place you turn? Do you turn to the suffering itself or the Lord of your suffering? 
Do you go it alone or turn to the only one who can truly help, which is Jesus Christ? In, in, in Isaiah 53, 3, Jesus is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, who has been tempted in every way that we are. One of the great value of the Psalms is that it provides an identification, an outlet, a, a recentering for our feelings and emotions and help us to put our focus on Christ. The Psalms provide Christ-centered answers to our everyday struggles of life. The Psalms are a treasury of true comfort, sympathy, and joy for the weary, hurting soul. Psalm 30, as you look at, we'll look at this morning, is a psalm about joy, our tears, and our lament. And one doesn't have to live very long as a Christian to figure out that both tears and joy are part of the Christian life. I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you wept? When was the last time you wept over anything? When was the last time you wept over your sin before God? Jesus said, blessed are those who, who mourn. Maybe it's too recent and you would rather not think about it. Maybe loss of a loved one or some severe trial that you've, you've had. You, you really don't want to go there. It's okay. Or maybe it's been a while and you have worked through it. You've gotten over it. And I don't mean that in a, in a crass way, but you, you've, you've gotten through it. God has gotten you through it. Remember those times. I, I can remember a time... When Lauren, our first pastor, was taken. Man, there was some crying going on then. I remember the days like they were yesterday, going to the house to see Cindy. Lost it. Totally lost it. In fact, she had to come comfort me. Yeah. So the Psalms talk about those things, our emotions, our feelings. You know, I, I think as evangelicals, sometimes we, like those words kind of, they, they burn coming out of our mouth, you know. Oh, I can't talk about emotions, can't talk about feelings, you know. I disagree. I disagree. Our, our feelings are given to us by God. We are wired with them. They are a blessing from him. I understand, now we, I don't want to get off, but we need to control them, Right? Paul tells the Corinthians to hold every thought captive, every thought. But we need, to, we need to think about them and use them appropriately. But before we look into this psalm, I want to go over some important background information. Psalm 30 is a psalm of David and some background points to consider about David. David was a man of great courage and a faithful warrior for God. In, in 1 Samuel 17, we have the record of David killing a bear and a lion with his bare hands. He was not very old. He was a young man. So David, even as a young man, was a man of great courage and strength for God. As a boy, he trusted God. He was anointed to be king. He was a warrior as he faced Goliath and the many enemies of Israel. He had to run for his life from Saul. And even at one point, he had to run 
for his life from his own son, Absalom. He was crowned king. He fought great battles. He was involved in scandals and public sins. He also experienced great joys in his life. He was the shepherd king chosen by God to lead Israel. And he did it skillfully in Psalm 72. says this, So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. In Acts 13.22 God raised up David to be their king, concerning whom I, whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. David was a man who wanted to have a heart like God's. May God grant us that same desire. Men, do you want a heart like that? A heart like David? Or any of us. Is that your passion, to have a heart like God? Well, he was also a man of of great tenderness and emotion. He knew sorrow and tears and wrote about them without shame as he wept before the Lord. As men, let's face it, men, we are typically pretty stone-hearted when it comes to some of these things. We're not wired to weep very often, if at all, are we? It's true. In fact, I was raised to believe that men are too strong to weep. Big boys don't cry. Men don't cry, right? That was the, that was the mantra of when I was growing up. It's a sign of weakness. Man up. Get over it. Well, that's not true at all. That's, that's a lie. That is a lie. David was far from weak. He was a strong and tender man. He was a man after God's own heart. And David was more of a man than most. As we turn from David, we look at the setting of the psalm, Psalm 30. Actually, I'm going to read it before we get into it. Psalm chapter 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help. And you have healed me, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing and have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. 
Well, some of your, read, your versions read a psalm of David before verse 1, a song at the dedication of the temple. Some versions read uh, dedication of the house. I don't know what other versions read. Some don't say anything, but we'll look at this just briefly. It's the, uh, this word temple and house, whatever your translation has. It's the same word translated two different ways, depending on your translation. Some scholars believe it was the temple that was yet to come, that was to be built by Solomon. Some scholars believe it refers to David's house, as in his lineage, the house of David. Some believe it simply refers to David's house, the one he lived in, referred to in 1 Chronicles 14. And it says this, Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees, masons, and carpenters to build a house for him. What a klutz. <laughs> Sorry. I would hold to this view. I would hold to the house of David, the one that he lived in. I don't see uh, really anything in the text that would indicate a future temple. There's not much related in considering uh, his future lineage here. If, you stick, if I stick to the text, I only see really his house, the one that he lived in. David is reflecting on his prosperity as we see that as we move through the, the text as he's in that prosperity um, in verse 6 is a word that simply means quiet ease or relaxation. Also, as in Deuteronomy 25, when the men and military were going out to war, if they had unfinished business at home, one of the things that they were required to do was to finish their home and dedicate it. And that would be simply dedicating it to the Lord. They would have a great celebration. It was most likely what we would think about as an open house or a, a ribbon cutting. But, you know, Israel, Israel did things big. They didn't just do a, you know, a two-hour thing. It was uh, probably very typically a, a brought-out uh, event. One commentator wrote, they consecrated the house by taking possession and dwelling in it. Entrance into the house was probably connected with a hospitable entertainment. So here I think that David is just writing about his home, the one he lived in, the palace that was built for him. And the type of psalm is simply, this is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise. You see in verse 1, 4, and 12, he says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. And then in verse 4, he sings praises to the Lord, O you, his saints. And then at the last, the closing verse, he says, that my, my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So the book ends praise, and in the center is praise, and so this is a song of praise. In this psalm, David is reflecting on his past experiences with God's mercy on him, and as God lifted him out of his troubles. And now as you as we follow along, don't be distracted by David's psalm. Live it. Live it. Live in this psalm. Because really, this psalm is about us as well. We live in these psalms, right? With emotion, with feelings, with problems, with struggles, with strife. We live here. Apply this as you move through this psalm 
with me as I go through it. So in the opening verse, David writes, I will extol you, O Lord. He will exalt the Lord God. You have lifted me up. Now this is written after his problem, after God helps him. So he says, you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. And it results here in a deep gratitude for God, for God's glory and God's mercy in verse 1. We see in the psalm the blessing of God's mercies, and David proclaims them. He says, you have lifted me up, this, and not let my enemies rejoice over me. David realizes that it is God who protects. It is God who protects. This word lifted up was used as a, in a way of a, uh, a bucket that the, the person, a person would put into a deep well. They would put it to the bottom and pull up the water. So we get this imagery of God raising David up as a bucket comes up from the bottom of the well. So God lives... David up out of a very low place. And David, who was laid low by God, so low that his enemies were ready to gloat over his demise. Look at the, the verse. He says, you have not let my enemies rejoice over me. And on into verse 2, he says, I cried to you for help. And notice the words here in this psalm. He says, I cry to you. And go, go down through, he talks about uh, crying again. He talks about weeping. He talks about make, God making him strong, being dismayed in verse 7, and so on. And so David here is speaking with words of great feeling and emotion for God's mercy. We also see here that in verse um, 2 and 3, he says, I cried to you for help. You healed me. You have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. So right off the bat, we see three things that God helped David with. One was his enemies, keeping his enemies at bay. They wanted to rejoice over him. David was in such a place where his enemies were probably gloating over him. He says that he, God raised him up from Sheol, that he, he kept him alive, and also he thanked God for not letting his enemies gloat of his demise. He was afflicted with some sort of illness, he doesn't say, but he had an illness that almost carried him to the grave. What he is saying here is that he had fallen into what was apparently his final illness, and was on the very brink of death. You know, we speak of someone who has, uh, they're so sick that uh, they're one foot in the grave. You know, we use that term. And maybe some of us have felt that way. You've been that sick. You felt like you'd just rather die, you know. Well, this was David. But David is saying that he was, he was so sick that his enemies had actually, in their minds, had laid him in his coffin. Visualized him laid out straight, ready to go into the tomb, or six feet under in our day. But it was from God that this, that God 
he delivered him. Notice in the text also some uh, very uplifting contrast. We see David writes, lifted up versus going down in verse 1. God who helped versus enemies who gloated in verse 2. He talks about a serious sickness versus renewed health. He talks about the threat of the grave versus life in verse 3. And then physical suffering versus praise and thankfulness to God. Now, notice how David thanks God for healing. He says that he is healed by God. And I think, you know, in our day of modern medicine and science and all of the, uh, the great things that we have through medical care, I think it's, it's very easy to forget God in those things. You know, we, we get sick, we just go get a prescription, or we, we uh, cut ourselves, we go get some stitches, or we need surgery, we go to the hospital. It's just very mechanical, very, yeah, you know, we just, just go get that fixed, no big deal, you know. Uh, but, you know, God, David doesn't go there with that. I mean, he had medicine in his day. Let's not, let's not think that, you know, 2020, 2019 is, is the day of medicine here, or the last hundred years. There's always been medical help. And so we must remember, as David thanked God for healing directly, we must remember that we are healed. It is God who does the healing. He may use medical care. He may use it as a, as a means to his end. But ultimately, it's him who does the work. Medicine is just a secondary means of God's great power. Let's never forget that. Also note that God is not some faraway deity, and he is our Father who cares for us. He, he cares, and he's close, and he's near. He's our Father. He's our friend in these times of suffering. But we often put our faith in science instead of God who provided it. So when you are sick, pray. Ask God for healing. And when you are well again, remember that it is God who has healed you and thank him for it, as the psalmist does. Now the psalmist moves from this personal thanks, personal struggle, and he calls the assembly to worship. He says, sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. In verse 4, after thanking God for restoring his health, the psalmist looks to include God's people in a call to praise and worship with him. It would be like, be like, kind of like one of us, being or you being very sick for maybe a couple few weeks. I don't know how long David had this illness from before, but you know, have you ever been sick for two, maybe three weeks, and you you stay away from church? What that's like? You feel this. I don't know about you, but I do. I feel this disconnect. It's a. I, I want to be with you. I want to be here. I want to praise God with you. And that's David's idea. He 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 gets through this time, and then he calls the assembly to praise God as well. So he's not. Just keeping this to himself, he's sharing it with the assembly. And so David calls on the people to rejoice with him in his gladness. David calls the people to praise God, not only for healing their king, but also because of God's holy and gracious character. In verse 5, he says his anger is but for a moment, his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now, it's interesting that we get that. We get his David extolling God for his favor and his rejoicing in that, that it's for a lifetime. 
He comes to this realization through his trial, his sickness, and he comes to this and he declares that in his writing. He understands that God's favor is for life. He says that weeping may last for a night. He talks about God's anger. He introduces this into the text. And I, as I was reading this, I'm thinking, now why, why does God, and why does David, in verse 5, comment and introduce God's anger in the middle of his rejoicing for being made well, for God keeping his enemies at bay, and lifting him up from a near-death experience? And apparently there's some anger attached to this. Why bring it up at such a high point, David? Well, I think there's something here that we need to recognize. Is there something David did to bring these problems on himself? And not to sound like Job's friends, but, oh, David, you must have, you know, you must have done something bad. You must have done something evil for God to, to bring this on you, like, like Job's buddies said to him. No, that's not the case. I think, I think in verse 6 gives us the answer. Look in verse 6. He says, Now as for me, now remember, David is reflecting on God's bring him through this trial, this problem in his life. And he says, and he's reading, he's looking back and he says, Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, here it comes. I will never be moved. Now, David, now I just went over David, what he was like. Rich king, powerful king, mighty warrior, killing bears, killing lions, killing Goliath. I mean, the guy is, he's there, right? In David's mind, he's saying, I've arrived. My prosperity, my house, look at the palace. Look at everything I have and what I've done. And so David, he kind of, he boasts in his, 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 his prosperity. And this, this word prosperity just means ease, ease of living, uh, you know, living the good life, as we would say today. And instead of extolling God, David extolled himself. He said, I will never be moved in my prosperity. The problem that David faced was that all his success, fame, and fortune, he became proud and self-confident, self-exalting. For David, this self-confidence brings on some serious chastening from God. And the Bible gives us some strong warnings about our pride and self-confidence. Proverbs 8.13 says this, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way. And the perverted mouth I hate. But notice that God hates pride and arrogance. Next, Proverbs 6, 16. There, 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. That's, there it is again, the pride. Right? A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans and feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. That's some pretty strong language. God hates it. Hates it with a passion. Well, David had thought he arrived. He believed that he was a self-made man, as we would say in our day. He was self-made. He was 
like the rich man in Luke who had to build bigger barns for his, his things, or Peter who said, I will never deny you, Lord. I will never deny you. When David focused on his self-made prosperity, or so he thought, he was silent about praising God for giving him his prosperity. He had become like the rich man in Luke 12 who had proud in his wealth and God judged him for that pride. We see a warning about this in 1 John chapter 2, 15 and 16 where John writes, Do not love the world, neither the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life or it can also be translated pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, David had become proud in his prosperity, and it caused him great adversity. Great adversity. It is very easy to slide down the slippery slope of pride. It can, become, it can come on us very subtly. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Let's be honest about it. Do some self-evaluation, right, before God. We are prideful. That is just one of our sins as we, we still live in our depraved bodies here. We are depraved creatures, and we still have vestiges of sin within us. And one of them is the idea of pride. We do the same thing when we think we are something when we're not. We do the same thing when we think we have gained something by our own merit, our own hard work. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get on with it. Find a job, get a job, you know, work, work hard, save your money, buy a house. That's, that's our own pride kicking in there. We, have to, we think we're something when we're not. What do you take pride in or glory in? What is it? What is it in your own heart that you kind of, what, this last week, is something that sort of just got you up about yourself, you know? And I can, I can think in my own, my own life, um, you know, working the job, the job market, the job world, and, uh, you know, working my way up the ladder. And uh, I remember I worked for a boss. He says, oh, he says, you know, I was, I was an inferior. He was my superior. I, he was a senior guy. I was an associate. And, Working for him, uh, he was an engineer. I was a, a CAD, you know, designer person, and and uh, it just happened that there was some transitions in the company. And I had a lot of knowledge about some particular things within the company having to do with file management, some transitioning. So that was kind of a handy tool for for the company to to keep me there. I could get my way around and find files that kind of nobody could, you know. They'd say, I don't, I don't, the document control would come to me and say, I can't find this file, can you find it? Yeah, oh, here it is, oh, wow, you know. So I was kind of, you know, it's easy to kind of get stirred up. Hey, you know, I'm big, I'm big. And uh, my, I remember my boss telling me they had done some mergers and things like that, and it was some, you know, they were doing some cutting, and, and he said to me, he says, yeah, don't worry. He says, you know what, they would let you go before, they would let me go before they would let you go. You just have a lot of inside knowledge to, this tribal knowledge, you know, that nobody can really figure out. It didn't really get to my head that much. Well, I guess it did, maybe a little, you know. I thought it was pretty valuable. And, um, but lo and behold, I, some of you know my story. I laid off. He's still there. 
Or as now I'm, I'm self-employed, you know, so I can, it's easy to say, well, you know, yeah, I built my business, you know, yeah, never, never give glory to God for it. I, I don't typically, I mean, that's, it's just God's grace, you know, that we all have what we have. But it's easy to get comfortable. It's easy to get, start thinking that, you know, I did something. This is me. It's about me. I worked hard. I, you know, I built my business. I did what I had to do. And a lot of you are self-employed. You can fall into that trap. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be self-employed. Anything. Any, anything. Buying a house. Being a, being a homemaker. A, a wife at home with kids and, and raising your kids. And, and this, man, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a great job, aren't I? I remember talking to somebody about that, about raising children. There's a conversation going on and talking about rearing kids and raising kids and and uh, they were just having a conversation, and, and one, one mother said to the other mother, yeah, we did everything right. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I've arrived, you know. I've arrived. Well, maybe, maybe you, you see yourself as a, a self-made person. Oh, what accomplishments do you take credit for that really is, is God's working? Your job, your house, education, what schools you've been to, degrees you have, education, you know, all of the bank account, retirement fund. What? What is the? What pride of possessions do you have that you that you uh, are quick to take credit for? David had become proud in his prosperity, and it did cause him great adversity. God had brought David to a very, very low place. God is holy, and God will chasten his children because of his sin. God had brought David to a low place in his life. In Hebrews chapter 12, we find that admonition to us by the writer of Hebrews that he says that, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. That's out of Job 5, Proverbs 3. It's also in Hebrews chapter 12. So in verses 4 and 5 in this psalm, we see a reference to God's holy, gracious character in calling us to holiness through his gracious chastening. David understands this and calls God's people to rejoice with him in his repentance and humility. And one writer says this, The point is this, God is indeed pleased, displeased with sin and can never be indifferent to it. He judges sin with holy anger, even in Christians. But for his people, God's judgment and anger are short-lived. They pass quickly. What remains is his favor, which lasts for lifetimes and forever. And just a note on verse 5, since, since we've seen, are seeing that this problem that David has is because of his own sin. This suffering that comes on David is because of his own sin. So I want to move away from the idea of chastening for a minute and just talk about Plain old suffering. Plain old trial suffering. God brings us chastening to correct us. He also brings us trials of James 1 to temper us, to develop character in us. And as we talk about you know, difficult suffering because of chastening, consider the suffering we endure through the difficult trials of life we find in James 1. We do experience hard times. They are part of life. But God is gracious in our trials. We normally experience far more good days than bad days. We enjoy more sunny days than rainy days, although a couple of months ago we might have been questioning that, right, in New England. 
But uh, it is the case. Look back on your life and see that this is true. This is true. In some cases, with daily suffering and debilitating illnesses, tears can come every day. And I know some of you go through this in physical hardship. Life is difficult. What are you struggling with today? It's not physical. What is it? Is it maybe uh, some wayward children or child? Or maybe there's some family tensions that you just can't seem to win over? Maybe it's income challenges. You know, there's too much money, too much month left at the end of the money, as they say. Making ends meet is tough. It's hard every week, every, every month is a struggle. Or maybe you have employment worries, concern about your job and the future of that. How about age-related anxiety? I'll tell you, I'm, I'm starting to think about age. It's, uh, it's, it's you know, not that long ago. I was, hey, carefree, I'm good, I'm, I'm healthy. But, you know, at 63, you start thinking, you're seeing people getting sick, aging, parents, in-laws going through serious physical trials. We all have, you know, many of us here have, have that, are dealing with that in one form or another, whether it's in ourselves, our bodies, or our relatives. Does that cause you anxiety? Health challenges. I know as many in this room have health challenges. How about loneliness? Lonely. You just you live alone, you're single, you whatever. You're just lonely. You deal with that? You struggle with that? that part of your suffering or just discouragement despair, despondency the Psalms are full of these realities, they're full of these emotions and God deals with them in the Psalms Job knew it well too you can turn to Job if you'd like, Job chapter 5 Job chapter 5 beginning in verse 6 we see for affliction does not come from the dust Affliction doesn't come from just nowhere. No, it's just not this, I just had a a bad luck day today. Affliction comes from something. It doesn't come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. For a man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Have you ever seen sparks do anything other than go upward? No. No, we are born for trouble. But as for me... Says Job, I would seek God and I would place my cause before God. Now, you know about Job. Many of us, most of us have written, uh, read about Job and the problems that he had. Nothing that I have ever experienced and never hoped to. Job had it very tough. But he says, as for me, I would seek God. I love the wisdom literature, the Proverbs, the Psalms. Uh, Ecclesiastes, it's just so rich with, with problem solving about our life's troubles. He goes on, Who'd, uh, and I would place my cause before God, verse 9, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields so that he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. This is David's cry right here in this Psalm 30. And so we see that if God can give the rain to the earth, he can take care of us, no problem. 
No problem at all for him. So this idea of mourning, weeping over, over the trials of life outside of chastening. In Psalm 56, turn there if you'd like. He said, we have a, I have a psalm here, a psalm of prayer and for deliverance and trust where David is pouring his heart out to God. There's great emotional tension as he struggles with fear about his enemy in the Psalms, his enemies. He is fearful, yet trusting. But I know this, and write it down somewhere in the margin of your Bible, maybe take a note, that your tears and fears are important to God. If your fears, trials, and even when God corrects you, corrects us in our willful waywardness, always remember that our tears are precious to God. They are. They are precious. He keeps and takes into account our tears. You know, when my kids were little, they would, uh, they would collect things, you know. They would have these jars of, of stuff like uh, little, little um, toys, you know, little like coin-type discs and other things like that. And I had one son who, I, just, it just, I still have him actually. He, he used to collect buttons. I don't know what it was with buttons, but he has this jar. He still has it at our house. It's just, you know, you, you collect things. You put things on shelves, you know, fancy things, and, and they're kind of cool to look at. That's kind of what we do. We, we just want to look at things and remember things, and maybe uh, sometimes, oh, we have pictures, right? We, we collect things. We're collectors. We, we um, keep things for mementos and um, uh, reminisce about the, the old days, right? Well, I had one son who would collect buttons. He'd sit there and have it on his bureau, and he would just, like, stare at it, stare at the, the collection. And I used to think, well, maybe, maybe he'd think he like to be a button and jump in. I don't know. Maybe he wanted to be his button buddies. Or something. I, don't know. I don't know. I never asked him, but I just thought about it. Maybe that was it. Kids have imagination. So he'd go around the house, and he would collect buttons, or if he'd find one on the outside or, you know, wherever, in the shopping store, he'd, he'd, he'd keep it and he'd put it in his pocket, and he'd add it to his collection. And I'd get a jar about this big, and it's probably, I don't know, maybe half full, but... Yeah, he's, he's, he used to have it, but he used to collect buttons. So we do that. We, we take things that are special to us, and we put them in something that we can, we can look at and remember. I don't ever remember, like, putting on clothes and having no buttons. I don't think he went and snipped them off, but, you know, he used to, he used to just collect them. It's it great. Psalm 56. It made me think of things why this says this. Psalm 56, 8 and 9, says this. You have taken account of my wanderings being chased by his enemies all over the place. You put my tears in your bottle. Not a bottle, not just any bottle, your bottle. He puts our tears in his bottle. So you, you see the imagery, the tenderness of that idea, that he puts our tears in his bottle. He collects them, he keeps them, puts them on his shelf, as it were. Then he goes on, he says, are they not in your book? He records them in a book. God doesn't forget our tears. He doesn't forget our a sorrow? I don't know. Then he says, my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. So God collects our tears, puts them in his bottle, and records them in his book. So your tears of sorrow, your tears of grief are not in vain. They are never in vain. And one day, God will wipe away every tear. Jesus does understand. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. In Hebrews 4.15, we have a high priest, right, who can be touched and sympathized with us in our weaknesses. 
Revelation 21.4. says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Back to Psalm 30. David goes on and says, Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. The imagery there is like a, a traveler who just stays overnight, gone in the morning, in comparison to our, our joy and days, our good days of gladness and rejoicing. Now we return to verse 6. Now he says, Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. Bad mistake, bad, bad thing to say, David. Because like as if God's standing on the side saying, okay, watch this. You won't be moved. I'm going to afflict you with your enemies. I'm going to afflict you with some sickness. And I'm going to give you a near-death experience. You'll be moved. You're going to cry out to me. That's how much I'm going to move you from your prosperity. That's a very strong thing to say. So David made a costly mistake with that comment. And it almost cost him his life. David is at this place of gloating enemies, sickness, near death, experiencing God's anger because of his pride. And David trusted in himself instead of God. But I think the turning point comes when his perspective changed and he repented in the next verse. He came to the realization that God is the source of his success, not us. Our success comes from God because God is gracious. O Lord, he says in verse 7, O Lord, by your favor you have made my mountain to stand strong. Yes, God, you did it. You're the one. Now that he's on the other side of this, he realizes God, by his grace, informs his mind by the power of his spirit and brings him to his senses so that he can think clearly. He says, you hid your face. I was dismayed. This, this, this word dismayed literally means to be horrified or to be out of one's senses. He was, he was out of his mind. This, this, this hiding his face that God did transformed David big time. If you look at the, the word meaning, he was, he was horrified and he was out of his senses. He was out of his mind with this. God hid his face from David, meaning that he pulled his grace from David's life. The idea of God turning or hiding his face is a, is a term of abandonment. And if you remember when Jesus was on the cross, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned by the, by the Father for a time. But in Jesus, even Jesus, his joy came in the morning, right? At resurrection. After the cross, same idea. Weeping is short-term, rejoicing is forever. So God turned his face away from Jesus on the cross, and we sing the song, How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. You see the effect of this turning away that it has. On David, it had an effect, and for Jesus, it had an effect. Although Jesus didn't experience God's wrath because of his sin. He experienced wrath because of our sin. In hiding his face from his saints, God brings us to repentance. So in his illness, 
In a near-death experience, he was restored by a simple prayer of faith. Verse 8, To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there if in my blood if I go down to the pit? Much like we read in Psalm 88. Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Will it? No, it won't. And so here David, he says in verse 10, Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me, O Lord, be my helper. At this turning point of repentance, David came to a place where he just wants to give praise to God for his deliverance. And if God takes his life, he's not going to be able to do that. His drive and passion is to praise God and also call the saints to do the same thing. He wants to give glory to God. It won't happen if he's in the grave. David recognizes grace and help. Instead of praising himself, his desire is now to praise the God of his prosperity. As if he is saying, if I go to the pit, if I go to the grave, I won't be able to publicly praise you in and with the assembly, and that's my desire, God. I want to praise you. I want to praise you. And I want to lead others to praise you. I don't want to be praised, but now I want to praise you. You raised me up. You rescued me from my enemies, from death, from sickness, and from myself, my pride. So David, David did find prosperity in his adversity. He didn't find prosperity in his prosperity. He found prosperity in his adversity, in this great trial that God brought him through. He could sing... He could sing the song. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ. And that's what David eventually did. Well, David closes the psalm with uh, four truths about God's mercies. You can see them in Psalm chapter 30, 12, uh, Psalm 30, 11 and 12. He says, one, you turned for me my mourning into dancing. The second thing, we see is that he loosed his sackcloth and girded him with gladness. In verse 12, number 3, that my soul may sing praise to you. And then the fourth thing we see, he says, I will give thanks to you forever. So I would close with this. Reflect on what God has done for you in giving you eternal life and allowing you to be eternally thankful and praising him. It should cause our heart to overflow with praise and speak about him to others as David is doing in this psalm. And know this, last two things. One, God delights in such praise. You will be drawn to him even more than you are now. The more you praise him, the more you want to praise him. See, praise to God comes from us Reflecting on the mercies and blessings and the grace that God gives us more and more and more as we live our lives for him. So the more we get from him, the more we want to give to him and praise him for his great gifts. And the second thing you will find that God uses your praise to attract others and win them to the faith. As a result, you will have even more cause of rejoicing than you do now. He puts your tears in the bottle, his bottle, and records them in his book. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
this time. In your word, as we open with Psalm 88, such a dark psalm, and yet we end this one with such great rejoicing. We thank you for your servant David and all that he was and all that he did. By your power, we thank you for raising him up. He's a man like us with the same emotions, struggles, problems. We thank you for the book of Psalms that addresses those things for us, helps us not to stay there, but gives us hope for rejoicing in you. We thank you for Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who went to the cross to bear the sin of your people. And that by our simple faith in that work alone, we can be made your children. So we pray today that there are any here in this room that do not know you, that they would consider these things as we live in a world of problems. We thank you for the problems that you bring our way to mold us to be like you. We thank you for your chastening hand that shapes us to be like Christ. We thank you for so many, many good days that you bless us with. There are only a few rainy days, really, in the, in the big picture. We thank you for your grace and mercy, your kindness, your goodness, your love, your long-suffering towards us. We pray you'd help us to reflect on the com- these things in the coming days, that you would cause us to praise you. You are so worthy. We ask it in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.